Welcome to Audio from Space. And yes, this episode is about space. But first, let's back up right to the very beginning. The Big Bang. It began in an instant. In a fraction of a second, our universe expanded by a factor of billions. For thousands and thousands of years, it was a hot, dense expanse of plasma. As the universe expanded, it cooled and particles began to form. After around 380,000 years, it cooled enough that packets of energy called photons decoupled from matter. Light was suddenly released, free to travel through the universe. dominate all other species on this planet. Sonification is a real-world process that can translate raw data into sound. For example, instead of using data to create a visual graph with falling and rising lines, we can use this data as pitch and time. This creates sounds with falling and rising tones that correspond to the original data. Various forms of data sonification were used by NASA to create the sounds you will hear in this episode. We will be going on a journey to explore the universe through sound. 
listening to real-world observations created by NASA. We will collect these sounds as we travel and, of course, eventually turn them into music. Our first stop is Jupiter. The sound you are about to hear is called a whistler. Whistlers are an audio representation of a lightning strike moving away from the planet into the plasma above. These whistlers, along with images of Jupiter's atmosphere lighting up, provided the first proof of lightning on a planet other than Earth. It seems we caught the trail of a speeding comet. This is the sound of debris formed by ice and dust in the wake of a speeding comet. In this recording, the debris is hitting an instrument on NASA's Stardust spacecraft. This instrument measures sound waves and electrical pulses from dust impact. After leaving the comet, these particles are not static. They continued to break up and create a constantly shifting trail of ice. Next stop is Saturn. Just like the auroras on planet Earth, Saturn has its own northern lights. These giant auroras are a source of intense radio wave emissions. Saturn's northern lights are the interaction of electrons from solar wind and the magnetic field at Saturn's poles. These recordings were used by NASA to calculate the length of a day on Saturn. Next stop is the edge of our solar system. The heliosphere is a bubble of space around the sun stretching far beyond Pluto. It defines the edges of our solar system. The sound you are about to hear is data recorded by Voyager 1 in the year 2012. It is the sound of vibrations passing through the interstellar medium of gases outside of our solar system's heliosphere. These vibrations originated from violent events on the sun's surface that blast matter and radiation into space. When these vibrations pass outside the heliosphere into the interstellar medium, their frequency shifts as they enter into denser concentrations of gas. You can hear this as sweeping tones. The capturing of this data marked a monumental achievement the first man-made object to send a signal back to Earth from outside of our solar system, over 11 billion miles away.
A gravitational wave is a ripple traveling through the fabric of space-time. Einstein predicted that these waves were created by massive accelerating bodies orbiting each other, such as black holes. Scientists had been attempting to detect them since the middle of the 20th century. When a gravitational wave passes through Earth, it causes the entire planet to stretch and contract by a tiny amount. The Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatories, otherwise known as LIGO, uses two lasers set up over extremely long distances to detect movement caused by gravitational waves. On September 14, 2015, LIGO succeeded in discovering gravitational waves for the first time. These gravitational waves were emitted from two black holes colliding 1.3 billion light years away. Einstein's theory was proven correct, that there can be ripples traveling across the universe, bending and stretching the fabric of space and time. What you are hearing now is a gravitational wave as it passes through the Earth. Now we're going to add a layer of audio that is the pitched-up version of this chirp. This version better accommodates our hearing range. These chirps are LIGO's laser readings converted into sound. Was exhausting yeah man yeah that's crazy I, I was just in a 
in the middle of a black hole. There's Matthew McConaughey was there. Oh man, yeah, I was kind of freaked out. That was, you know, it's quite intense. Like, why am I suddenly here now in your studio? Oh yeah, well, well, we opened up a wormhole. You know, we needed to get this <laughs> oh, interview right. done and on the way. So, so. Oh, wait, is this? Are we in the moon base right now? <laughs> yeah, got, it's just some cardboard boxes over there. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm Ruben Kaner. I'm a bass player, also producer. Uh, I work with a bunch of different bands in New York. I've got a band that I work with called Animus Rex. That's kind of my main thing, which is uh, it's kind of collective of session musicians. We do kind of live electronic music. I love electronic music, and that's the kind of music that I make on my own as well, uh, especially kind of interested in sort of the underground scene in the UK. There's a lot of amazing stuff happening there and, and stuff over here, of course, as well. All right, so I'll hit my next question here. When did you start playing music and what instrument did you start on? Well, I started a bit on piano. Like My dad's a musician. He actually does like musical sort of semi-comedy sort of one-man musical show <laughs> that he tours. He got me into music when I was young. My brother played as well. Um, I started on piano I guess then I got into jazz at like quite an early age like a weirdly early age I was like really into Ella Fitzgerald and like all sorts of stuff that's amazing and uh yeah quite a nerdy kid and so started learning saxophone and then you know when I was a teenager I I think this happens for many people like who play the saxophone you realize like it's quite hard to play saxophone along to Rage Against the Machine so (laughs) I had to move on to a different instrument and um started playing bass and that's been, yeah, that's been my main thing. My whole career has been like as a session player, but more recently been writing much more music myself and kind of, and very soon will be releasing, like finally kind of putting a load of my own stuff out there. Um, although, you know, I have been writing tunes in my band, Animus Rex. So yeah, that's my thing really. What's the NYC music scene like to you? I know you go back to the UK a lot. Could you tell us yeah. a bit about that and maybe the difference between NYC? Sure. I mean... Yeah, it's tricky to to sum them both up. There's so much happening in both places. Um, I mean, I think what's incredible about New York is you just have such an amazing concentration of talent. Um, and I think that there's there's maybe there's like a little less industry happening in New York, at least for like managers and promoters and and booking people who will come in and kind of help out. That can make like a really good thing happen in New York too in that you have like a really high concentration of people who have to diversify and just become incredible instrumentalists who can kind of do anything and run around doing a million different gigs. And that's where you get like these kind of super musicians coming out of New York, you know, these incredible session guys. And uh, and it also means that like you can go on any given night, you can go to like smaller clubs and like see these incredible people playing. Like there's a certain scene in New York at Arlene's Grocery every Thursday night. There's this fantastic jam session with world class musicians coming through, playing at this place. And, you know, it's a relatively small venue and it's amazing. It's awesome. I think there's kind of, you know, there's that in London as well, but there's more of a more touring bands are put together and there's a bit more of a platform for independent music in London in in that we have non-commercially funded uh, radio. We have the BBC, which just by the fact that it's not beholden to advertisers, it can have a bit more choice over what it plays. There's also like a, you know, there's a great selection of independent radio in, in the US as well, but I think you have to work a bit harder to find it. Whereas in the UK, like the BBC is everywhere. And you have like the main radio stations over there playing a lot of quite progressive stuff, which is which is pretty cool. That's what's exciting about the UK. I think that's had a big part to play in like the development of electronic music over there. And um, 
different radio presenters like you know, like Benji B or like Annie Mack kind of pushing more underground stuff. So yeah, I think I think it's really healthy in the UK, and that's why I find that really inspiring. And like what I've been trying to do is sort of try and bring that stuff over here a bit, and and pair that up with the kind of amazing instrumentalists that I know over here, and try and play music that kind of has those influences, but played live. And, and I think the world of sort of live electronic music is still kind of in its infancy, just because it's difficult to do, and it requires sort of technological developments to happen. I think there are a few bands out there doing it amazingly, like Little Dragon are an incredible live electronic band. Uh, James Blake's band is amazing. But yet, it's, it's, hard, it's a hard thing to do. Like Floating Points is doing some really cool stuff. Um, that's what kind of got me excited, like we've been talking about the MIDI bass that I got. Yeah, I so wanted this. to get into the MIDI bass. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's a perfect MIDI segue bass. into it. Can you explain a little bit about this MIDI bass? So yes, yeah, so the way the MIDI bass works, um, so essentially... The issue with any MIDI stringed instrument, it, at least before, it's the general way of doing it has been using a MIDI pickup, and that has to read two cycles of the wave in order to track the pitch. Um, so it has to, you know, read that string vibrating, um, and two cycles of a low frequency note on a bass. You know, your low E, because it's low frequency it's going to take a little bit longer for those two cycles to pass. So you're going to have longer latency. So this has always been the issue with bass, with the bass especially, with MIDI pickups. Is, and, as, and on bass, you've got your time is really important. You've got to lock in with the drummer. So any latency is a real issue. So these guys at Industrial Radio, the way they're doing it is they hook up all the frets so that each fret has a sensor on it. And essentially, when you, you place your finger on the string, it closes a circuit on that between the fret and the rest of the bridge and um and then it knows where your finger is uh and it doesn't have to read the pitch uh via the actual you know reading the wave so it's a much quicker thing you can get down to around four to five milliseconds of latency which is playable um so yeah it's, it's pretty exciting so and the way i you it also just looks like a regular bass yeah it looks like a j bass yeah so that's what i find really cool about it is like it doesn't look like you're doing anything like weird and like oh look at my midi bass right but it's kind of unassuming but then you can use it to trigger literally any sound you want and you can i you know you could hook it up to a sampler and just have like crazy big bass sweeps that could come out and just turn that on for a second um, you know, the way I have it hooked up is I have it going into a pedal board. I'm triggering a Moog Minotaur. Um, so I've got like big, fat, like analog bass that I can trigger. Um, but then you also just get the regular bass sound comes out of it. It's just like a regular J bass. So I can blend the sound of an actual analog synth and a regular bass and have them both coming out at the same time. And it's a really interesting effect of like those two things together. That's so cool. Um, so yeah, and also like all just the regular bass effects and like my kind of the previous setup which I had, which is kind of, you know, boss octave pedal, plus I've got like a Line 6 M9 with a bunch of different sounds in it and expression pedals and stuff. So combining all of that together in a little pedal board, is, it's awesome. You've got like a lot of options there. So going back to what you were saying about live electronic music, which I find so fascinating, and you have this mini bass, can you tell us what you use to produce your music and when you're doing live sets, what you use? Yeah, uh, so, well, actually... I've been finding more and more that kind of the mi <laughs> the minimum kind of amount of t kind of crazy electronic technology technological stuff that you can have going on tends to be better. Like the the more live it can be, and the more it can just be 
just certain synth patches and maybe like a few sounds on on a sampler being triggered but everything's being kind of totally played live like the the whole thing is retaining the feel of like live musicians while also having the sort of the sound aesthetic of a lot of this electronic music and it's kind of hard to strike that balance because electronic music is like a lot of it is is you know every four bars has been poured over by like for hours and hours by the producer you know just to make the speakers create do move in a certain way to create some certain sound you know there's a lot of it is about kind of pushing boundaries and kind of making combinations of sounds you've never heard before you know um so that's that's tricky to recreate live but i just find yeah the way that at least we do it with animus rex is kind of using the minimum number of samples that we can but still creating that that sound that kind of atmosphere while also using live instruments as much as possible so i don't know it's, it's kind of a balance of both those things do you use uh ableton no and that's the other thing it's like we haven't been using any backing tracks or anything like i feel like as soon as you introduce a backing track it can very easily just suck all the vibe all the live feeling from it and i've and i've had to just play with many many bands where like we try it as soon as we put on a backing track to play with like it just takes away some of the energy sometimes it can work um you know and there's some bands like uh, rudimental actually they play with like they have tracks going but it's it sounds great and like a lot of that's on the drummer i think um you know playing with that really well and still creating like a really live feel with the drums but yeah, I'm trying to keep away from laptops. If everything can be analog, then great. You know, it just it just has a better feel to it. it. Just has a more human feel. I have two more questions for you. You recently did an installation at Burning Man. Can you give us a little snippet into this experience? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, so I know a little oh, snippet into sorry, that. A little is. snippet. You know, you said, what was Burning Man like? But you had an installation at Burning Man, and, and I just want to know a little of the experience of, you know, even just down to the logistics of bringing all this out onto the middle of a desert, you know, yeah. what you did, uh, how you got hooked up with who you did it with, and you yeah. know, what the outcome was. Well, that, um, well, first of all, I should say, you know, all I did was, like, the music to it, and I did, uh, and I also helped helped build it was just kind of there during all the construction and bringing it out to the desert and like the whole huge process that well that sounds everyone like goes a lot, through with that no yeah that, it was a lot but <laughs> in comparison to the amount of work that everybody else put in of course, and especially of course. Yuli, i understand um yuli levtov whose project it was who was the you know he was the brains behind the entire thing just the incredible amount of work that he put in and that everybody puts in at, at that festival it's insane people work all year round like full-scale pyramids built and like you know you can walk in and and like just amazing stuff um you know and then they set fire to it all at the end <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah so i mean the project we did was an interactive periscope experience essentially it was a pyramid that you'd walk into and there uh there's a periscope in the center and you look through it and it you know runs up out the top of the pyramid and there's a, a periscope looking over the, the festival and so you'd look around and depending on what it was looking at, if there's lots of activity happening or certain lights and things going on, then visuals that are projected onto the side of the pyramid would react in terms of, of that. And then also the the audio or the music was programmed in a way that, yeah, depending on what was happening in the viewfinder, it would trigger different musical events and trigger different sounds. And like if you looked uh, out into the distant playa where there was not much going on, like a more ethereal version of the track would start fading in and kind of more reverb and different things that's so cool oh it's great fun and that that it was really interesting way to to approach production where you're 
you've basically got to make a track that's similar to, I guess, how video game music is, where you've got to have different versions of the same track that easily fade in between each other and have different atmospheres to them and different instruments triggering the same parts and that kind of stuff. So that was that was a really fun process. Um, but yeah, that whole the whole thing was, I mean, it was great fun, like going out to San Francisco and like being in this giant metal workshop with all these ar- other artists around, kind of creating these incredible sculptures, and you're there like working, people are welding, sparks are flying around you, and you're like, <laughs> and we're like getting the forklift truck t- truck out, and, like trying to raise this thing up and trying to work out how we're gonna build the whole period. Oh, it was it was just it was a lot of work and it was great fun. The the cool thing about what happens at Burning Man is you have like a ton of there's lots of criticism about the place as well obviously (laughs) that you know there's like a lot of people saying oh it's all full of tech bros now and everything but what's kind of cool about the fact the fact that like there's this whole the silicon valley exists and it's over there is that yeah a lot of these people congregate together and it's kind of a bit of a melting pot of people with lots of interesting ideas all meeting each other in quite an artistic exciting environment and um and yeah so after burning man um I've, I've continued to work with those guys and, and uh, so, like the l- latest project I've been doing is for Google um, there. So Google are releasing, about to release, by the time this podcast comes out, it might already be out, but the their own new headset, a virtual reality headset. Um, so I've also done the music to, through those guys, managed to get the opportunity to do the music to one of the, the games in that. So again, like another experience, like trying to, trying to make music that kind of can adapt to a virtual reality experience where it's kind of interactive and like the user can kind of trigger certain things that will change the, the music, stuff like that. That's so cool. Is that something that you'd like to pursue in the future? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I never thought I'd do. It's just sort of come along and yeah, I'm sort of definitely. Pick any space, any dream space to perform or do an installation in and tell me a little bit about it. Well, I mean, immediately what comes to mind is the, the dream stage to play on for me is the, would be the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury just because I think Glastonbury is like an amazing, magical place. And uh, I got to play there before uh, with this. Yeah, I got to play there with um, Isaac Lee Chronic a couple of years ago. Um, he's a really great singer-songwriter from the UK. Everybody should check out. And uh, yeah, just when I was there, it's another place of just like, just you can have a magical experience there of like meeting all sorts of amazing people. And, you know, the um, the universe can kind of come together and create these incredible things. But <laughs> so I know you're really fascinated with space, as am I. And when we started talking about this episode, you mentioned space. I was so excited and it's been an incredible journey working on this with you. What about space excites you the most? Um, I think for me, uh, space, like the study of astronomy can kind of really make you ask lots of fundamental questions about what reality is. (laughs) And that's something that I've just personally sort of been questioning for a little while now, quite intensely. and, And I meditate. So like, that's a sort of big part of that process of kind of questioning what your life means and that like we're alive as a human being it's a pretty strange thing and um the fact that astronomy sort of probes the deepest levels of reality and the kind of the farthest stretches of the universe it it kind of really makes you question things in an interesting way listen in to ruben's new single crunch
Sound and music are everywhere. If you want to explore in depth any of the sounds used in this episode, visit audiofrom.space for a full bibliography. 